poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Philosophical Friday on Chasing Poker Greatness with your hosts, Brad Wilson and Duncan Palamortis. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. Today's Friday, which means it's a very philosophical day. And Duncan and I are joined by Solve for Wise, Matt Berkey, also CPG podcast guest number one, Matt Berkey. And with that said, I'm going to throw the ball to Duncan. And so that he can, you know, set up the, the rest of the show. For, for sure. And also uh, creator of the new podcast, Only Friends, uh, available in, in several places. Uh, and Matt, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. I know people can go on YouTube. Uh, where, where can people uh, watch, watch the show? Uh, yeah, so it's available for video uh, on YouTube. And then basically any other podcast, podcast outlet, uh, the audio should be available. We're a little slow on the uploads to be quite fair, but... Um, It'll get there at some point. Get get an assistant or two, Berkey. Come on. I mean, the thing is, like, it's it's really funny. We were very lucky. We uh, had three kids reach out to us. I shouldn't call them kids. Three young men (laughs) reach out to us uh, and volunteer to intern. And they've been wildly helpful. But I had no idea how many gopher tasks we have until I realized that, like, we're basically working them too hard. <laughs> you know I mean? Like, they're time stamping, they're going through our website, they're doing all of this stuff, and it's like, on top of that, hey, could you upload the audio? It, it, it kind of just gets done when it gets done. Yeah, makes sense. And plus, you, Which, you know, your show, you have a lot of different people going back and forth, too. I think the editing and mixing of that audio just feels like a nightmare. Uh, yeah, so we've been getting a lot of pushback in the comments. Uh, People don't get it. We, it's not produced. We're doing it live. So Andre's running everything through a live feed, and he's doing all the cuts. He's doing all the, the audio mixing, and we don't have the proper equipment. Like, this is the problem. This is, this is why there is such a massive hole in this space for this type of content, because nobody has any fucking clue what goes into the back end. Yeah. Like, when we were doing uh, the, the Negranu Polk Heads Up Challenge and, like, a lot of the other production we've done in the past, we were borrowing or renting equipment that would cost anywhere between fifty and two hundred thousand to outfit ourselves with. And you know, now we're doing a daily show. Well, we can't rent it. It's too it's too pricey to rent five days a week for an entire year or however long this this experiment goes on. And it's really costly to buy for a podcast that generates no direct revenue. So we're finding patches and and like workarounds and things like that. And it's like, I have a big booming voice that, that really like inflects a lot. And I'm a nightmare for Andre. <laughs> like I'm a dream for, for a sound editor who has the time to like really uh, precisely dial everything in and calibrate towards my voice. But I'm a fucking nightmare whenever there's seven voices, six of which are rather meek and easy to like level off. And then you have this one big booming voice that you don't really have direct control over, right? Like I'm on a channel with like a couple others. So it's like either you don't hear Christian because we're on the same channel 
and he gets turned way down or I peak throughout the course of, of the show. Uh, and, you know, we're going to keep working on it and tweaking it, but hopefully we get a little grace thrown our way and the audience remains patient. Yeah. Hey, hey, audience, you know, it's free. So <laughs> deal with it, right? Like yeah. we have three people right now on the show and I'm already a little bit uh, anxious about the editing process. Like the more people you add, the more difficult it is and everything's got to be mixed and leveled. And yeah, it's a logistics nightmare. Um, so and, it, and, it and, also, and also one thing is that usually the people who complain, the, the, the complaining voices are the loudest. But from what yeah. I've seen, a, a no, lot no, no, no. People... Berkey's the loudest. Was... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the boomingest. So it's a, the... yeah. But um, but but Matt, I I do have I do have a question for you because you know like I, I I couldn't sleep at night because I couldn't resolve that question. What did the chef say about the ketchup incident? Like I I I wanted to know the answer to that question and, and tell the audience a little bit about that story. All right. So the backstory was uh, we went to brunch in San Diego at this two-star Michelin restaurant. And I am not at all a pretentious eater. I'm very meat and potatoes. Like I like my food simple, bland to the point and functional. And uh, it's a seafood place, which to me is a little odd, a bit of an odd choice for brunch, but whatever we're on the, we're on the ocean front. So it kind of makes a little sense. Uh, and I like fish, but um, I'm not like an eclectic seafood eater. I'm not into oysters and shellfish and all this. Other. Like, give me a nice white fish, make it, you know, cod or uh, halibut or, or something of that nature, something meaty, and I'm good. So I'm, I'm going through the menu, and I, I'm basically looking for something that I can palate at noon on a random Thursday. And it's like, all right, they have fish and chips. It, it would be impossible for me not to like this. It's, it's such a simple meal. So I order it, uh, and it comes out. And I'm from Pittsburgh, like the land of ketchup. Heinz 57 is uh, built and bread in pittsburgh so we put ketchup on everything where ketchup would make sense to go if it's fried it's being dipped in ketchup period uh and the waitress comes out serves it to me and uh you know it's basically just like fish on a platter with french fries and i'm like ah, excuse me could i get some ketchup and i'm already prepared to be disappointed i'm expecting to get like the quote-unquote fancy ketchup where it's going to be like spicy <laughs> or some other shit's going to be added and i'm going to be like intolerant of it but whatever um, and she's like, oh, uh, the chef doesn't carry ketchup in this restaurant. We, we, we don't use that for this type of food. He's prepared a nice sauce for you. Like, how dare you? Like, this, this isn't his decision to make. I get to decide what I dip my food in. Uh, and I was like, I don't want your sauce. And like, come to find out, it's just like Zaxby sauce where it's like, you know, uh, ranch and ketchup mixed together or some shit like that. It's like, Give me the other half of this sauce that he used to make it. Like the, the raw ingredient. Yeah, it's like he didn't whip this up from scratch. <laughs> I know he has a bottle of Heinz back there that he mixed together with like some ranch or whatever. Like, like let's stop pretending here for a second. So she kind of like was very snooty about it. I'm like, all right, whatever. Uh, and I was about to eat it dry, and then I was like, hold on, we're like on the boardwalk. There are restaurants everywhere. So I get up and excuse myself, and I walk next door to a fast food place. And I just get like a, as much ketchup as I could tolerate or carry back. And I come back and I enjoy my meal. And that was that. I left a good tip. I walked out. And uh, I hope that whenever she was cleaning the table, she went back to the chef and said, this son of a bitch <laughs> went and found ketchup. He brought his own ketchup. Can you believe it? 
So there was no interaction with the chef? No, no. Oh, God. that's so I, anticlimactic. Oh, I, I mean, so we kind of talked about this uh, a couple of days ago when we were talking about the Will and Jada stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Melissa brought up a good point where she was talking about how much she loves Farrah Gelfond and her personality right. and how uh, her and Phil are the perfect foil to one another where it's like, Phil needs her because she's the type of woman who will send his food back whenever it's not what he ordered. And like, that's me. I'm very non-confrontational. Like, they could have given me the total wrong order and I would just be like, whatever. Like, I wasn't hungry anyway. (laughs) And just kind of push it to the side. So there was no way I was going to be like, oh, I need to speak to the chef. Like, I'm I'm getting ketchup one way or another. The the line is ketchup, though. That's where you're like, no, I'm going to solve this problem. Uh, Yeah. I'm not going to have no ketchup. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to not eat the food, but um, it would have been close. I, I think it would have been close. That's, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're the customer there, and uh, it's not an unreasonable request. Come on, I mean, you just asked for ketchup, you know. You didn't ask for, like, some fancy ingredient that only, you know. As I get older and live in Vegas longer and am surrounded more by people who have acquired wealth, I just realize how fake and contrived and pretentious and snooty high-end living is yeah. uh, and it's just so the polar opposite of everything i was born into and have known my entire life like i will just never ever ever arrive at a point in my life where craft macaroni and cheese isn't something that i indulge in every now and again like i'll never like turn my nose up at people that are just like eating simple things or enjoying simple pleasures in life yeah, I think it's like um, at some point they decide that like the normal game of life is like too boring. And so just like layer yeah. on additional games on top of the game. And they, it's just like all kind of silly in my experience as well. Yeah, it yeah. seems like a, a giant dick waving contest of like, oh, right. I read that. You, you, can, you can have some fun with them, though. Like, you know, like some, sometimes I remember like in some nightclubs, people were like, you know, oh, you cannot get in with those sneakers. And I was like, oh, you want me to take them off? I mean, just go like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, I would do that. Not, not, not a problem. But, but I hear you 100%. Uh, but by the way, we, we do have, we're going to, uh, we created a strategy segment just for you. So we have a very important uh, question about strategy because we need to get serious here. It's a, it's a serious podcast. So uh, button opens. Uh, we have queen for offsuit and 15 big blinds uh, on the big blind. So do we three bet jam or do we three bet call? What's the, what's the, uh, what's the strategy there? Uh, I, I have to tell you, this, <clears throat> this really set me back a long, long way in my comprehension of this game because... I, you know, I maybe I'm not studying enough. I don't have a three bet range off 15. Uh, I'm just ripping or folding. Right. Maybe I'm old school, you know. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really, I haven't really delved into the uh, the five big blind three bet call off right. range there. But yeah, that was uh, that was a real unique situation. I mean, you're the math guy. Tell tell me how this works. Like, <laughs> did he actually arrive at a point where he's indifferent with queen high and kind of has to call? Oh, all right. So let me tell you what went through my mind because, you know, Phil is a very, although for, for those of you who happen to live under the rock, that happened. Uh, you know, Phil Helmuth uh, very famously, he, he three bed uh, with 15 bigs uh, and then called a four bed for his entire stock. And so uh, I was telling Brad earlier that I have a tendency to allow Phil to be resort, results oriented sometimes because of how good he is at, at reading people when they're strong or they're weak. 
Um, but in that case, I don't think he felt that he was ahead or anything like that. I think what he was doing, if this is my speculation, right? I mean, you know, you, you can tell me what you think, but my speculation is he sort of instinctively, because he's no dummy, he sort of instinctively realized that he's not necessarily a favorite to win, given the competition and his stack size. So he sort of thought to himself, you know what? This is as good as opportunity as any for me to, you know, to go ahead and gamble. If I have one over card, I'm close anyway. I don't want to get crippled. So let's go there, try to, to hit it big or essentially go home, which is, I mean, in terms of an ICM, you know, people are going to say, Duncan, this is an ICM disaster. You know, your, your extra chips have, you know, uh, less value than your final chips, you know, so the, every extra, every additional chip is, is more valuable. So you don't want to give like that, uh, your, your final chips that easily. But in all seriousness, I think something like that may have gone through, through his mind. What, what, what do you think? I think that's probably a pretty reasonable assessment. The, the, the paradox to me is that I watch him do this over and over and over again with like really strong hands. Like I'll, I've seen him like raise fold ace jack right. off of like a comparable stat. It, right. it just doesn't align with Helmuthian style of play. Right. It, it's, it's so strange to me, and maybe like this is his new wave, right? Maybe him and Cantu <laughs> got back in the lab, yeah. and uh, it was just like, "Yo, look, uh, if you're gonna be doing some wild shit, make sure you have a face card when you do it. And uh, if you're getting three to one, like, yeah. what can you do, man? You just you got to stick it in, right? Maybe exactly. he thought the four was an ace. I don't know. I, I, I mean, um, I mean, it's fifteen big blinds, so honestly, I, I have no fucking idea about it also like the sizing anyway, so. is uh is so egregious it, right, it went right. like min raise to like six x or, or like six big blinds or seven big blinds something like that. so he he like almost had half of his stack in the middle right and it's just like if you're gonna do this i mean i guess you just start a clicking war where you go like four and a half i don't know what like if the plan is to three but call it off i, I don't know what min well there was click- no plan yeah, I, well, I don't know what yeah, min clicking it, like how that outperforms, like just the jam versus yeah, the button yeah. open, right? Like that's, that to me is the, the question mark. Well, I don't, well, I don't here, even know this, the ICM the situation. Thinking. Here's the line of thinking. I can't jam this hand. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It's what other people will think. I'm the best player in the world. Right, right. It's, it yeah, starts with yeah. boxing opens way too many buttons. Can I jam? No, I have queen four off. This hand's fucking terrible. Okay, but Fox <laughs> still opens way too many buttons. Maybe I'm I'm a nit. He's gonna see me destroy. It's the old man coffee syndrome. Like I'm gonna play up my image and just like blast off here, and then find yourself in a spot where it's like fuck. I'm getting like three and a half to one now. I have no choice. I think that the irony of this situation is I played a tournament a few months back and I'm pretty sure I jammed versus a, a guy who I thought was opening too many buttons with like the queen deuce um, <laughs> for like 30 bigs in the tournament that I played because it was like, I don't know. Tournaments are strange to me. I was like, I didn't do much studying beforehand in like MTTs. Cause I mean, I'm not going to invest energy into my one MTT every two years. Um, but like, yeah, it was just, it's an interesting environment that's quite different from cash. And to me, it was like, okay, like if we're going to try to generate fold equity, it felt like jamming super wide versus like a button open mm-hmm. is way superior than like opening uh, with ace four suited from under the gun or something along those lines with like 25 bigs. Um, so yeah, it was just like, 
spots where I can leverage a bunch of fold equity against one villain who's likely opening wide and you know, in, in Helmuth's case, right? He had the queen in the fourth. So he had equity. He, he didn't have 0% equity. Sure. He still realized. Um, so there was hope. But yeah, I'm woefully unstudied in MTTs. Speaking of woefully unstudied in like live MTTs, our, our boy, you know, Nick just got yeah. second yesterday um, for like 300K down in Texas. So yeah, congrats to him. Looks like he's uh investing lots of energy in the live poker streets which is kind of an unexpected uh career arc for him yeah i think he enjoys it i, I spoke with him a bit about it uh he's been playing a fair amount of 1020 at bellagio um he wants to try to like get bigger games going which i'm all for but it's it's tough the the landscape stuff honestly like i've never been a huge fan of tournaments either but i'm strongly considering shifting my study more that way for a few reasons uh, one, they're open, uh, which is pretty pretty nice once you're in an established spot. Uh, but two, they're they're largely unsolvable. They're a much, much more mathematical conundrum than uh, the static environment of cash. Um, not that cash is anywhere near solved, and trust me, that's my passion deep down. But same. like <laughs> same people on average, the floor of like hundred big blind no limit hold'em is much, 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 much higher than the floor of like entry level MTT play. Um, or, 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 or like if we want to talk about the most simplified version of MTT play, like 15 big blind poker, right? Even 15 big blind poker is expanding every single day with what we're seeing. I mean, just like the utilization of small sizing is really complicating the game tree. Uh, there was a fascinating hand played in the USPO between Sean Winter and um ali uh Zmirovich, where they were three-handed icm was very close i think him and ali both had 50 bigs and jake had like 40. jake opens button john three bets small ali cold fours out of the big and somehow in a cold four bet spot they've only currently put in 12 big blinds which is yeah. insane just insane that like these are the sizings that are are being studied and utilized but it makes a ton of sense because right. You know, these high rollers are a little bit quote unquote turbo ish from a structure standpoint. So they're mostly playing on average 25 big blind poker and they're trying to solve it down to something more complex than just push up or push forward. Right. right. Uh, so it comes back to Sean and he has a six suited, which, you know, probably going to be like a low frequency bluff. And he chooses to five bet click. So again, now they're playing a five bet pot, only 50 blinds effective, not all in. And somehow we see three streets of betting out of Sean. <laughs> that's crazy. So it comes yeah, Jack really, High. He goes more. 10%. Turn is a king. He goes 15%. River's a six. And he jams for half pot and gets Ollie to fold queens. And it's like, this is just, my head is exploding. Yeah. Right? It's like, I can't tell you how many times with 50 bigs that uh, I've been in this scenario with queens. And it's just like, Okay, well, I'm going to live or die with this hand. Like, we're just all in. I'm not interested in playing three streets post and keeping in his 10% bluff frequencies of, of ace high. But, like, you know, these guys are insanely sharp, and that spot is so unique. Like, there's no way that either of them have ever uh, really calibrated for a three-handed ICM scenario at a final table, five-bet pot, in and out of position, right? Like they're mm -hmm. intuiting their way through this off of other studies that they've done. And 
it's really endless because that spot will never present itself again. Yeah. Like that specific dynamic. I teach that in general, hundred big blind cash is like a six bet game. Generally like a natural six bet game, like three bet pot, bet, bet, bet. The river bet is just jam for the most part, like four bets pre there's likely going to be like a small bet and then a jam, or you can yeah. go to like small, small jam and stretch it into like a seven bet game. And like, as you add depth, you know, you can add like an extra bet because it, the pot increases exponentially in size. Um, if size, I may, Brad, just a very quick point to that. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the difference between the cash games and the tournament uh, tournaments, right? So the complexity in tournaments lies exactly in what Matt basically suggested, like the ICM that every chip is worth different value, but the, the, the complexity in cash games in the depth, like if you go really, 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 and he mentioned that earlier, like when you compare 100 big, Matt mentioned that is 100 big blinds, uh, cash versus uh, tournaments. Tournaments are far more complex. Like there's hands down, right? I mean, there's, but then when we talk about like, let's say thousand big blinds deep cash games and tournaments, then that, that's a different story, but this different yeah. type of complexity. So yeah, yeah go ahead. We, we need our like the 10th bet that goes in the middle. We need to have right. some bluffs for our 10th right, right, bet. Right. How the fuck do you get there? Well, <laughs> you, you've <laughs> got to put in the first nine. Exactly. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, uh, turning a 50 big blind tournament situation into an eight bet game, uh, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> kind of wild. It's really to fascinating, me. too, because as you add depth to cash, what ultimately ends up happening is range advantage becomes such a massive leveraging point. Absolutely. That rather than bets being added to the game tree, what ultimately happens is sizings increase up to like, you know, I, I mean, really up to infinity, but like we, we've been able to at least study up to like 4x pot jams. And potentially even like 10x pot jams, depending like how how large you get. Basically, like the more polarized the range can become, and the more uh, more linear the other range is, the more jamming just takes place for infinite, because right. the amount of the amount of calls that you find in the other range are just like really difficult to even find at equilibrium, but then almost impossible in practice. Right. Like, because not, not bluffers too. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, just in, in the polarization versus linear, like you don't want to offer your opponent great pot odds, and one mm -hmm. way to do that is by like a four x river bet. Um, yeah, makes it quite difficult for them to to bluff catch successfully. Uh, and um, another question uh, be before we we run too, too too much off topic here, but another question <laughs> I, I had is I had there a you. topic, Duncan? What's the what's the topic yeah, here? <laughs> We were thinking of, uh, you know, talking about a poker media a little bit, right? And uh, yeah. uh, we were hoping that, you know, Matt, Matt will uh, will shed some light, you know, in the uh, what's missing in the poker world in terms of, of poker media. And that's like the, 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 big, the big question uh, we, we have for today. Uh, but before that, uh, I was curious on one more thing, because um, Matt, in, in, in your podcast, you, you talk about about a lot of poker personalities, you know, or people who play a lot of poker, people people know, like, you know, you've talked about Garrett, you talked about uh, Dylan, you know, Rampage, uh, Bunny, you talked about a lot of different people like that. I'm, I'm wondering, like, what are, what are the reactions, you know, like how, because you're you're very, and, and I like that, and I think that's why people can like the podcast, is because you're very raw, you, you speak your mind, you know, you don't sugarcoat it, you say exactly as it is. How, how do they react to you? Um, I, I would say mostly positively. I, I think that I try to be as objective as possible. And I obviously just try to lean on people that I know. Like I have, uh, I, I don't want to go so far as to say like I have relationships with all these people, but it's like we're, we're peers, we play together, uh, we're at worst acquaintances. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think like, 
I think Paulina probably felt a little bit over scrutinized. Uh, but I thought we did a pretty good job as a whole, like a team and myself uh, specifically, like just laying out what's public and factual and, and, you know, not really inferring any sort of opinions one way or the other outside of like the bigger question, which was, you know, uh, how should we treat these live streams? Uh, are we here for the spectacle? Should they be uh, taking advantage of uh, building characters in perhaps a negative way and things of that nature. But that was never really a reflection on Paulina. Like, you know, she could do whatever she wants. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, she is going to do whatever she wants. Uh, I thought we were much tougher on Rampage. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, you know, uh, he, he's done poker out loud for us. I know him personally. Like, uh, I didn't think he would be offended by any of it. And it didn't seem like he was. Um, we weren't really trying to tell him he's wrong for doing what he was. It was more so just like, again, laying out what it is that what he does. What did Rampage do? Uh, he bought it for 100K with G-Man directly to his left in uh, the 100, 200 game at, at uh, Hustler. And it's like, you know, whatever. I'm 100% on himself, by the way. Like, yeah, he, he said he had 100%. Yeah, yeah. So five, 500 uh, bigs deep, basically. Yeah. And like the assumption Jared is that, left. you know, it was a fair chunk of his role. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, we're just basically pointing out the obvious, like that's very negligent, but also, uh, to his credit, he's incredibly young and he has other means of income through YouTube and whatever the hell else he's getting his, his feet wet in. Uh, so good, be brash, you know, take shots. Like, uh, you know, you'd much rather be in that scenario with G-Man to your right or not in the game at all, but also the lineup was very soft. Like. You know, it didn't work out for him this time, but I, I think he's winning in that spot, um, even if Garrett is sucking up a lot of his EV. Yeah, it's tough. with It's tough playing 500 bigs with Garrett directly on your left. Um, I think, too, like in a soft game or soft environment like that, um, and I didn't watch the stream. I just saw like the one four five hand where he yep. like tried to bluff Garrett, Garrett turned it straight, which, by the way, I think was just like whatever. I think his hand probably wants to bluff it, it is what it is i didn't think it was like a punt or anything awful or atrocious um but yeah there is something to be said about like you know the infinite game staying in action and probably not kind of going out of your way to tangle with you know the behemoth on your left uh when you have other opportunity to battle some other folks who are in the game um and i think a lot of that like you said he's young a lot of that is kind of I think ego, pride, all of these things, like let's take on the, the giant. Also, here. it's also part of the business plan. Yeah. That, those those uh, follow-up videos that he did got clicks. And that's, that's true. Worth I, a lot I, th I think that's, that's probably one of the biggest points because uh, if some of the listeners, you know, listen to this and they think to themselves, you know what, I, maybe I can do the equivalent way and I can come back, back from this. There's a difference between somebody like Rampage who, who gets side benefits from all of this and somebody else who actually, if they lose the, the last penny they own, they may never be able to recover, yep. which is something that I'm always trying to be very, very cautious because, <clears throat> excuse me, I tend to, you know, speak to a lot of people, you know, uh, and you guys too, I'm sure, I mean, you know, like, not necessarily in the, uh, in the light of, you know, the uh, publicity and, you know, what we see, to, uh, um, and I, I mentioned that to one uh, on Twitter as well to a, a comment that that Garrett uh, made uh, that 
it's okay for people, uh, in my view, to to take risks, but it also understand it's important to understand what are some of the um, repercussions if those risks don't go well. And there are people who actually haven't come back to tell the story, right? I mean, sure. I think yeah, there's I think like that's... two two sides of it, right? Like for sure. I, I also know people that play really gigantic and never want their name mentioned anywhere in any public setting in the poker space whatsoever at all, right? Um, but those people tend to be quite successful, like outside of poker. And again, that they have something to fall back on in the case that they do like lose 500K or whatever it is in a single session. They start with a lot of money. Um, it's not going to ruin them. And I think like Rampage is somewhat similar, except, you know, he's going to make content. He's going to claw back uh, a lot of the loss through future YouTube videos and exposure and all, all of these other like various revenue streams it's a person also that's still like, has a win rate at poker too right, right. Like he's going to yeah. make money this year playing poker maybe maybe he won't profit playing poker this year because that's a big loss um but like he recouped uh he ended up winning like a, a ring uh a couple days later and recouped 60k immediately yeah uh, i mean that's lucky obviously <laughs> but you know he's going to keep playing poker for the rest of the year so like he will recoup some of the loss he seems to love it too which is very yeah. helpful. Like he, he's not good. Like he just seems to genuinely love playing cards and that's like, yeah, a really strong thing to have in your corner. Not he being, loves the content you know. too. Uh, I was about to say, he loves talking about poker too. It's yeah. not just that. Yeah. When and, he came out to do poker out loud, he was very, like, it was clear that he was on a mission to build a big YouTube brand. Like he was basically explaining like, look, I've done my research. I, I have some really good uh, concrete ideas on how, I'm not only going to grow this channel, but I'm going to grow a multitude of other channels. Mm. And he seems to be well on his way. Yeah, good for him. Um, Which is a good segue, also, <clears throat> excuse me, about about poker media and uh, some of the the new approaches that people, I mean, people, uh, I think Andrew Nimi was the one who started that idea of like live hands. Right? I don't know if there was any any pioneer before him. Was there anybody else who was doing this? I think like Poker probably. Trooper was like the first one to. Oh, he was. Oh, he was the first one. Okay. Blogging. But Nimi was the first one to like really do it professionally, like really well done. Real well done. I mean, that's that's the first one that I that I saw anyway. So, um, Matt, why don't you talk to us a, a little bit about that? What what are some, you know, what what is the progress historically of the um, the side? poker entertainment either just watching poker but also talking about poker discussing poker and poker stories and what are some things that are missing you think from i think as a as an entire community we have really screwed the pooch on this one uh, mm -hmm. we were blessed in the early 2000s with the advent of the whole card cam simultaneous to online poker kind of uh getting its feet underneath it um and we incurred a massive boom which made things very easy because you don't have to market a boom. A booming market will market itself, right? Like it's just like crypto at this point. You, you don't really have to shill Bitcoin. It's it's just a thing. You know, it's it's mainstream media is picking it up, and that's the way poker was in the early two thousands during the money maker era. But nobody really had the foresight to understand that there are going to be, you know, call them black swan events or corrective action that. Uh, allow us to regress back to the mean and become the niche market that we always were and always will be. The problem with not having that foresight is then we get to Black Friday and then the years post it and nobody's picked, nobody's picked up the slack, right? Instead, what happened was all the media 
that was being financed by online poker rooms pre-Black Friday died. Hard players all but out of existence. Bluff actually went under. Um, you know, uh, sites like Poker News are now just marketing firms for hire. They don't exactly do organic things anymore. It's, it's more so like uh, pay us X amount and we'll mention you in this column, that type of stuff. So uh, media as we know it fell completely by the wayside. Televised poker as we know it fell completely by the wayside. And now we're left with this problem that keeps getting echoed throughout the community of why can't we bring in new money? Why can't we bring in new clientele? Why aren't we expanding? Why is there no place to scale, no growth? Why can't we uh, acquire the female um, clientele? Why can't we acquire, acquire the minority clientele? It's because we were marketing a dream for a decade, and that was easy to facilitate. You could play online for pennies and potentially be the next Chris Moneymaker. There was billions of dollars, literally a billion-dollar industry, driving the marketing train, building characters like Daniel Negreanu, Antonio Sfendiari, uh, Phil Locke, Phil Locke like wow. all these guys who have a nickname, you know, they all are a part of the poker allure that was generated by these online sites. When that all fell, nobody picked up the pieces. And the problem is that we're now left to kind of scramble and do it ourselves. So vlogging became the low hanging fruit and these guys are killing it, right? And they're doing what poker media is failing to do. They're shining a light on the day-to-day -day grind. They're building characters, even if only themselves. But a lot of them are collaborating amongst each other and making their stories interesting, making their lives interesting, uh, making their friendships and things of that nature interesting. Um, but looking bigger picture, I guess, what's, what's our greatest failure, I would say, is that we're not leveraging anything other than the game itself being played. So we are still trying to lean on a non-visual game as the selling point as to why new people should be interested. We're still trying to reinvent the wheel as we did whenever whole cards became a thing in 2003. And nobody gives a shit. There's no way to dramatize poker. There's no way to make watching a nine-hour live stream more interesting, right? It's watching paint dry. I don't care if you have the whole cards or not. I don't care if you have Nick Shulman on the mic. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't dismiss yeah. that because Nick Shulman is absolutely a unique force that does change the way we view content. But we don't have enough of him, and he yeah, can't no. scale, right? We He's need absolutely least, yeah. Yeah, we need 100 more of him. And it's not even necessarily just his knowledge on poker, right? He's a unicorn. It's his knowledge. It's his personality, his wit, his timing. Like, all of this makes Nick the voice to listen to whenever we're watching some sort of poker content. But again, it just doesn't scale. We don't have enough of him. And uh, also, um, he's very much positioned to only do the most prestigious events, right? So we already care about the content that he's commenting on. He's just this added layer that makes it a huge deal. So then what do we do, right? And, and the answer is very obvious to me. We have to use the game as a vehicle to prop up the actual characters that are playing it, right? This is a character-driven space, not a gaming space. This isn't esports, right? Like you can turn on an esport having never played the game before in your life and follow. 
you can see what's actually happening. If they're racing, you can see who's winning, right? If, if they're playing uh, an RPG, you can follow the narrative of the storyline that they're playing. Uh, if, even if they're playing a, a competitive game like World of Warcraft or whatever, where you may not have insight as to what the strategy itself is, you can still watch like a sport and still be entertained, right? Like, I don't know what the strategy behind cricket is, but I can watch it visually and understand rather quickly what's going on. Same thing with like curling. Like I watch well, curling. I, I was thinking about the same thing. I was like, yeah. curling is like probably a perfect example. I'm not even positive how the scoring works in curling, <laughs> but I enjoy trying to figure it out while I watch, watch them play 10 ends. You know, it's just like, it's, it's fascinating to me. Serious question. How often do you feel like uh, I need to clean my room after you're watching curl curling? Like, uh, curling is easy there's a hammer that's a person that goes last you try to get close to the center you sweep the ice no no just just serious questions though like because you bring in very good points matt but uh i I wanted to like um follow up on this because um a a lot of what you're saying is uh related to to content and i i think you're, you're absolutely right there's no clear line at least to the uninitiated and especially without editing which is something that the ESPN tried to do you know trying to show that that the hands that matter uh without editing without good color commentators or at least without having the the greatest of them all the time you know the the Gabe Kaplan's and the Nook Shellman's and you know all of these uh uh Norman Chad's all all these greats um uh, do you think that the issue is primarily on content or do you also think there is an issue about revenue? Like, for example, that the revenue stream was cut after the, the websites were out? Or do you think it's both? Or do you think one affects the other? What are your thoughts? It, it's, it's both, but it's carting from the horse, right? Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's no revenue being pumped in because we're not, we're not doing a good job of marketing our, our space. And we're not doing a good job of marketing our space because it's fucking expensive. So the problem lies within that there aren't enough big corporations that benefit from propping poker up to drive the 30% loss lead that you have whenever you're creating a marketing budget, right? So, you know, we turn to poker go, we basically just like put everything on them and say like, we're trusting that you guys are going to do right by us and uh, market this space as, as much as humanly possible in a way that, that online uh, rooms did pre Black Friday. And PokerGo is basically saying, like, no, like, that's not our mission. We, we don't care about that. We have this niche high roller space that we've created, and we are licensing our ability to produce good shows out to others. We are, we're buying up licenses from pre-existing shows so that we're the primary content uh, creator in this space. So basically, like, if you want any sort of, high-end product produced content in the poker space, you have to pay us $10 a month. So they're, they're more so trying to be the Netflix of poker rather than an operator, right? So we actually need operators to come in because it behooves them the most to gain customers, right? Poker doesn't care if more people play poker necessarily. They only care that people watch poker and care enough about poker to follow. It's, it's the WSOPs of the world. It's the party pokers, the... Poker the bet MGMs, right? Like, should uh, poker get legalized coast to coast in the United States, we might see a little uptick of this. But even for them, I, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about their sports book. You know, it, it, that's, that's where they really want to 
generate the majority of the traffic. And uh, I think they see poker as a potential bridge there. Um, so, like, you know, there's a chance if things legalize, someone like DraftKings suddenly becomes the biggest player in this space. And they understand how to market. They understand uh, to some degree, I think, what it is. Because DFS is the same thing, right? Like, it's not a visual game. But they've done an incredible job of marketing it coast to coast. The difference is that they have, they actually do have visual games to leverage, right? So if you're talking about daily fantasy for football, um, they can produce a ton of fucking content that is strategic in nature and feeding the beast of people who care about daily fantasy, whether it's on a shallow nature or on a deep level. But then they're leveraging all of the visual content of actual football, right? Mm-hmm. So they're showing you highlights during the shows and, and they're, they're, really building the character-driven narratives off of the players in the actual sport. Ours is a lot more difficult because there isn't a ton of visuals to show, so it's a lot more like wrestling-driven where you need these interviews, you need these behind-the-scenes, you need what vloggers are doing on the daily yeah. to be happening at, at a grander scale. So, so what can what can we learn from some of these people that they, they've been doing it right, even though our situation is different? And, and, and out of the... Um, out of the people who are already doing it, who do you think is the closest, you know, to 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 get to the, the vision that you were just describing, the vision where perhaps the goals are a little bit more clear, who's winning, and also the characters are being li- a little bit better shaped? Um, I, I really don't think there's anybody in the space doing a good job. I think okay. Doug did a great job uh, as a self-initiated kind of uh, platform construction. Mm-hmm. Like, he built himself up very well. I think Brad Owens doing... Uh, pretty amazing things. Like he's he's grown almost two x larger than Doug, which is pretty impressive considering he's just churning out the same content daily. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does show that consistency is is uh, really rewarded in this space, and that's okay. that's the greatest indicator that uh, the market's deprived. Right? If they're willing to show up every single day and watch the exact same piece of content over and over and over again for years, it means that nobody's rivaling that content. Right? So I, I think that's probably the greatest takeaway that we have here is that the space is ripe and it's adjacent to a lot of bigger markets such as sports betting, daily fancy. Like these are billion reaching trillion dollar industries. The, the betting industry will be a trillion dollar industry within the next five to 10 years, depending on how legalization goes, right? Um, we're, on, we're on the fringe of crypto. We're on the fringe of all these things. But Nobody is really willing to take the loss now to build this massive entity that can bridge all of these spaces together. Poker goes in the best position, but I don't think that it's in any way, shape, or form a part of their mission. It's quite strange. I think after Black Friday, a lot of the platforms seem to be antagonistic towards pros and characters in general. I know I've spoken with folks at like Global Poker, which is sort of the biggest conundrum in the space to me is there's this one platform that has access to the U S market and swears like up and down how difficult it is to like build a good ecosystem and market and grow when like GG poker comes out of nowhere, doesn't have access to the U S market. And they just like go right into the stratosphere by leveraging, you know, celebrity leveraging the pros and all of these things. It's always been very obvious to me the pros, the celebrities in poker are what you leverage to grow. Now, whether or not people are willing to invest the resources necessary in doing that 
is is another question or whether it's even viable or, or feasible in the marketplace but i mean when i started making content you know a couple of years ago this this podcast um yeah like there's no nobody that's going to help me make this a business and make it move forward into the future right it's all on me i've got to sell training i've got to sell courses i've got to you know leverage connections for other opportunities and kind of just like go about it my own way and say well fuck all the platforms and all of these outside people who you know they're just not going to help you've got to bootstrap it and do everything um on your own and i think that's quite the bottleneck for most people who get into the the poker content creation space of like well yeah, you're going to have to do it for a while and it's, you're not going to make any money. Like, and you just have to press on and figure out how to like build a business. As a matter of fact, you're going to lose doing. money. Like what, 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 what Matt said earlier, it's, it's, you're going to, you yeah. have to be ready to lose, lose a lot of money, especially if it's something that it's a, it's a big thing. It's a big production, right? Right. So that to me is sort of the weirdest, it's a strange thing that, you know, Full Tilt wasn't, they came along like near the end as a major player in, the poker space, right? They, they weren't, they were a minor player for quite a while. Um, and it was like play with the pros and they leveraged, you know, the dream and, and the pros to their massive advantage. And that was what enabled them to grow. But then I think the fallout from black Friday obviously didn't do any of the poker pros, any favors, um, as it related to like how black Friday, uh, or how full, you know, full tilt, just that whole situation of, you know, them not having the players money in escrow and all that. I think so long as we are in an individualistic mindset in this space yeah. uh, where you are forced to bootstrap and be self-made and only worry about your bottom line and your EV in the space. Uh, I think as long as that's true, we'll continue to contract rather than expand. And I think also what people are going to find out the very hard way, it's going to be a very difficult lesson for most, is that when you're in a contracting uh, market, no matter how good your product is and no matter how uh, unique or special you think what you have to offer is, you're ultimately going to find that the ceiling is not only low, but very unattainable. So there's no first mover's advantage right now in this space uh, regarding anything that's already been done, whether you're talking about vlogging or training or coaching or creating software, whatever the case may be. First movers advantage has been long gone, right? Unless you come up with something genuinely unique, which in my opinion, the unique thing that would really move the needle and give you a first movers advantage would be to be the first, um, like the industry leader in cooperation. Yeah, Somebody building a cooperative type of business model in this space would be the absolute end all be all for a lot, a lot of how shit that, product. How would that look like? How, how would you like, again, I mean, you know, we can always, you know, speculate, visualize, create a vision. How would that look like a cooperative? Uh... I, I've tried to figure out a way to model this for a long time. I, it's, it's something that I really do have a lot of belief in and something that I think can be pulled off. The issue is monetizing. Uh, mm -hmm. Because we don't have that outside revenue coming in, and almost everybody's operating currently off of an either an a la carte model or a subscription model. Right. And the issue is there's not enough meat on the bone when you start talking overhead to do uh, like rev share deals with everybody. 
Um, and this is why PokerGo is not able to, to grow either because they're only right. really interested in doing rev share deals. And that's just honestly largely a fail because uh, I don't, I'm not even positive that they're profitable, but even if they are, uh, it's impossible to like, so like if I want to make a movie for them and they say, okay, great. Like uh, what we can do is like fund it X percent and then we'll do Y percent rev share on the back end. It's like, well, you can't isolate my movie. You, you don't sell it a la carte. So how, how does the rev share even work, right? It's like, am I going to get one cent on the dollar for every everybody who subscribes to PokerGo? Or is there going to be every new subscriber that comes after my movie launches? Because if it's the latter, uh, you know, this is a fuck deal for me, right? Like now, uh, now basically I'm an affiliate who is creating uh, content that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it, it just kind of fails. And at scale, that's what we see whenever we're talking about the training industry or the vlogging industry or the streaming industry or uh, all these things that could potentially funnel more eyeballs to our community. Uh, there's just not enough meat on the bone to say like, okay, well, what's going to happen is Software Wise is going to become the number one platform for people to go to for poker training. And what we're going to do is we are going to license training from every existing uh, coach that we deem to be worthy, right? So we're going to find a way to work a deal with run at once and upswing and uh, you know, Jonathan little and, and Brad and like all of these guys. And then what's going to happen is we're going to pull all the money that gets funneled in from just our website. And everybody's going to get some sort of percentage based off of the contribution that they have. And they can still operate as single entities, right? So they could still have a monthly subscription that you could go directly to Brad and say like, okay, I just only want your content, so I'm going to pay you directly. But if you want access to all the content that we deem to be good in this space, you come to us and you pay us an exorbitant fee. So like say Brad is $30 a month. You pay us $500 a month, right? And now you have every single piece of content to choose from. The problem is we can't charge enough, right? Because if, if we get like, like what I just suggested, where say we have 10 sites underneath us and they're all charging on average $65 a month, right? Like, let's say that's, that's what they're making per person. And we say instead charge, I mean, you, you can't charge accordingly, right? So say it's 10 people, you can't charge 650 a month. Nobody can afford that. Nobody's going to pay it. So instead you charge like 2K a year, something along those lines. They, they could probably come up with something like that, right? You just, you, 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 uh, you force them to commit for the year rather than on a monthly basis. Well, now they're basically paying like 150 a month and you have 10 people to divvy that up with. Even if you give them equal splits, they're now making $15 per customer. Now, granted, this is additional revenue because it's being streamlined by one overarching entity, but they also are now going to be losing direct consumers that were otherwise paying $65 a month, right? Yeah, you because compete with them. Yeah, people would just prefer to have all the content rather than being limited to your content. Uh, so it's a really tough sell, right? You have to find other people that share in the vision that also are willing to uh, grow and expand alongside you while broadening the market and eliminating the bad actors. And the problem is, is like, we think in a free market that uh, it'll work itself out. The bad actors will just go, go away. But that's actually not what we're seeing here at an individual level. There are a ton, a ton, a ton of money grabs and shit actors because it takes too much time to weed them out. It will take a decade to get rid of somebody who absolutely is unqualified to be doing anything uh, in this space, right? And 
The problem is, is that people are looking for a magic pill. We see this all the time in, um, in like the, the public speaking domain, in the motivational speaker domain, the, the guru domain, right? Like there are so many people uh, that are just selling bullshit, the, the how to get rich schemes, right? And the market can't weed them out because the population's stupid and they're willing to pay. I think you're preaching to the choir a little bit because, you know, like one of one of the mottos is, you know, like if, if somebody says, if I can do it, you can do it. You know, that's usually yeah. a, big, a big, a big red flag. And, yeah. and, 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 and what you said is actually very interesting. Like uh, one of the things that uh, um, immediately pumps to my mind, even in, in this collective environment, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm, what I'm hearing is that, you know, when you have a lot of different content from different places, there's going to be sort of like a natural ordering, like, you know, what people like to watch more, right? Which means some people who rise to the top and some people right, who, who go to the bottom. How does, uh, you know, one can use some capitalistic approach so that the, the things that rise, to, you know, sort of like fall to the bottom, they can be discarded. How does it, that encourage people to, you know, stop having deals with the people who are at the bottom of the chain? So I think that's the biggest problem is that in this space, it's almost inversely correlated, right? The, the products that rise to the top are largely being consumed by the more intelligent, better players, so to speak, right? Um, and they're also discarding it rather quickly because they get their usage out of it and then they study on their own and, and grow and expand without the aid of a coach or a tool or whatever moving on. Um, the general populace, who's very uneducated in this market, is buying the low-hanging fruit. And the low-hanging fruit is often being peddled by a bad actor. Right. So unfortunately, uh, what often happens is a lot of the market share is being sucked up by a collection of bad actors who are very good at marketing. Right. And the the whole the product sells itself thing only is true with a small subset of the community that's educated enough already to understand why the products are so valuable. So, again, this is where that marketing issue comes into play uh it's partly why polk had such success he by far has done the best marketing and second to him is jonathan little their products are very 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 different right they're not on the same level as far as like what they're offering their consumers when you're talking about doug are you talking about his youtube channel or are you talking about upswing i well i his youtube channel was his marketing upswing is the product in okay. my opinion Okay. So yes, um, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's trying to because again, we're talking about like in in both of these cases, they, you know, um, I, I don't know if if you guys agree, but I would say that the the quality of their content is on on the higher end on on both cases. Both, in both, both cases, cases, yes. But uh, the the reason I'm comparing them as apples and oranges is because uh, one of these products could potentially yield a, the end result being uh, somebody who's beating high stakes, oh, yeah. and one of these products could potentially right. yield a losing player going to break even. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 and here, here's the thing. I mean, and we're also uh, um, restricting our conversation to uh, pocket education, right? Because there's yeah. also other, other aspects as well, which can be uh, very broad. And at the same time, the, the end goal is not necessarily for somebody to improve as a poker player, but to get entertainment. Uh, yeah. in, the the in, problem with training in the poker space is that by and large, it's it seems to me as if we just value complexity more and more and more when ultimately like simplicity is what gets the job done. But like, we don't want a simple answer. 
to a very complex game. And so like a lot of times people get stuck on a, a, on a training platform just because it's ramping up the complexity and they think they're progressing when the reality is they're kind of just treading water and not, not moving forward. Right. And I, I think that's like, it's hard for the average poker player to discern between complexity that is beneficial and complexity that's just there for complexity's sake, right? Yeah, I, I agree and disagree at the same time. Um, I think that, I think your point about us trying to reach simple solutions is true. I think the problem is starting with the mindset that simple solutions exist. Um, that's true. I mean, yeah, the, it's, it's the, tough the, to, to reach a simple solution in such a complex game. Right. Well, we can quote Einstein again, right? We should make things as simple as possible, but not simpler than that, right? Because Correct. again, sometimes there is inherent complexity that we cannot overcome, but there is, you know, sometimes you can go as simple. Like even Einstein with his general theorem of relativity, he was actually able to describe it in yeah, one sentence. You know? Yeah, so, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the, the complexity has to be acknowledged and comprehended before we can arrive at the simple. Right. where the vast majority of people who enter this game are trying to distill it down to very simple terms without ever having any vision over the complex, right? right? So a lot of people, whether we're talking about like the random guy who's playing a $5 sit and go at his, at his kitchen table or the average like two five player, a lot of them are entering the idea of study with this notion that simple solutions are right there for their taking. And they don't actually have any vision over the complexity of the game. You know, you say that if you say to them, it has more decision points than atoms in the universe, that just brushes right over their head is like not that big of a deal. Like the magnitude of that sentence doesn't carry the weight that it actually should. And ultimately the follow-up to then that is, okay then, so what, what preflop size should I use? Like they just want these coherent, concise, simplistic metrics that they can follow through every single decision point and try to intuit results. But Matt, what, what preflop that's, chart that's are you can, using? That's Candyland, right? Like that's not poker. Right. <laughs> right. right, and it's like, it's like it's some, it's some decision points of the tree, we can distill it down to uh, simple metrics like that. Like you could choose a single size preflop and that's fine. And you could play according to the chart by position and you'll do okay. But like once you get to post, there's no simple like on this board bet that. And do it always, right? Like there's just no always or never. And uh, I think like that nuance is really what separates winners from losers. And uh, let me let me rephrase. I think acknowledging that nuance is what separates winners from losers. I think comprehending that nuance is what separates good from great. And I think actually being able to discover new nuance is what separates the best from like the elite from the great. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Question, and, and I know, you know, uh, Matt, you have limited time, so we don't want to keep you here forever. We're enjoying the conversation, so we can go <laughs> as long as That's you fine. can. <laughs> sure. uh, uh, so, uh, fun fact, you, you reminded me something, you know, I, I, before I, uh, you know, wrote the book, I was ready to publish it without, you know, any any charts and any 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 strategy whatsoever until, you know, like I, I heard, I, I had a huge pushback, both from my wife and the, the publisher and you know one of the two i value really highly so sure. it's like yeah so it, it, it because she was like you know okay uh, I, she was new at, at, at the time she didn't know how to play the game she was like you know i'm not sure i know you're speaking philosophically and you tell people how to think and things like that but you know like where do i start 
so they can like like you said i mean it's it's understanding of the nuance right i mean it's understanding that but those preflop charts, which, by the way, they come with like a million disclaimers, right? This is yep. not what you should do every time, right? Um, are, are just a, a starting point. But I, I do have a question because this is actually very interesting. And, 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 and I've, I've been thinking a lot about these things, too. Um, do you think it's possible for the uh, poker community at large, as we're talking about poker media and entertainment, do you think it might be easier, given to how complex it is to talk about education and how, uh, you know, nuanced it can be to perhaps move away from education in order to reach higher audiences? And I don't necessarily mean move away from good education. I mean, move away from education entirely. Yeah, well, yes and no. Um, I think you have to acknowledge the elephant in the room. And I think a lot of produce content right now is trying to avoid that. So I do think that, right, like PokerGo tries to do both, uh, but they try to segregate the two. So they try to keep the World Series of Poker uh, as, I, I don't want to use the phrase dumbed down because I feel like it's reductive to the commentary, but they, they try to keep it at a level that your grandmother could understand. And they want it to be visual and fun. But again, we just have this problem that visually speaking, there's nothing happening, right? Like, you can only see ace king versus queens all in so many times before it becomes boring. And so like now I need you to add a layer as a commentator as to why I care. And I always use the analogy of uh, NFL commentary, right? Tony Romo reinvented the entire system when he came in as a, a, as a former NFL guy who was willing to acknowledge that strategy was existing in the game. And he was willing to divulge his knowledge of said strategy and speak in a language that wasn't necessarily comprehended by the audience at first, but one in which they knew he was a qualified voice to speak in. So they, they played catch up, right? Whenever he comes out and says like, oh yeah, they're playing Tampa two defense and we can expect the linebacker to shift left and uh, the cornerback to drop back and get over the top help. The average person doesn't know what the fuck that means, but there are words in the English language that have a direct definition and literally mean what they mean, right? Like, okay, Tampa 2 is just a, an adjective and it means a certain, a certain defense, right? But we know what the linebacker is. It's a position. We know what the cornerback is. And we can, we can infer what over-the-top help means, right? And you start to hear it repetitively more and more and more. And what happens is you raise the bar of the average education of the viewer. I think we have no choice but to go the same way. Right? It's not like chess where it's predetermined and you can just start to uh, label the grid and say, you know, E5 moves here and people can visually see it move there and you don't really need to know any more. Uh, but if you want to know more, they'll layer a story on top and say like, oh, well, this is a specific opening that was developed in this time frame by this person. You know, we don't, we don't have that in poker. Yeah. So uh, I think it's very hard to not acknowledge the nuance and still retain any sort of audience over any any period of time like sure they'll watch wsop clips and they'll get hooked but in order to keep them you can't just keep repetitively showing them flips over yeah. and over again and hearing norm make a joke about his ex-wife <laughs> um <laughs> you need like some language upgrades right i was i was watching football this past year kind of thinking about how like, you know, what is first down or second down? What the fuck do we keep track of in yards as a measurement, right? A, a Hail Mary, shotgun, 
um, meters, <laughs> three, four, four, three, um, you know, like you said, cover two, cover three, man, all of these different, uh, descriptive words that are in football, make it its own special thing, right? Like even, even in baseball, it has its own language that sign a double play. Everybody knows what a double play means, but you use it out in the world. Like, oh, wow. Look at that person who went to Burger King and McDonald's. That's a double play, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. There's no like a uh, use case in the real world. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's, that's quite a clever observation and quite smart that poker needs its own sort of language that makes sense and is understandable um, to the average person and also it just be upgraded to the current strategy to modern right exactly modern theoretical right. Strategy. exactly it, and also like able to be said in a way that is understandable to an average person as well like over time right i think it's fo football I think it's benefits important. from like madden too because you have a hundred percent it benefits from madden but it also benefits from having a guy in the booth with tony romo that can interpret for the audience. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really what it comes down to is like you need to acknowledge the nuance and have somebody who's very good at that, but then you need to partner him with somebody who's an everyman that can, you know, break that down in simple terms for anybody who may have gotten lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I, what, what do you guys think of sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say I, like I've been watching WPT because for some reason they have their own channel on my Samsung smart TV um and it always is running. And, and like it it kind of cracks me up because I haven't watched like tournaments on TV in quite a while. And like, you know, Lynn will interview someone after they bust or whatever. And she's like, you know, how does it feel to win, you know, $400,000? And, you know, the poker player is like, well, you know, I, <laughs> it's like Fedor or something, right? Like this has happened a hundred times, this variance and like, and you know, she, like she's trying to get the emotion, but like, there's obviously no emotion there um, to, to really speak of. And I think that sort of like, as an insider watching it, I'm like, Wow, that is a really bad look for poker because like yeah. there is no excitement anymore, um, which is yeah, it's just not good. Or or the death stares. These are my favorite. Or as I like to call them, like love stares. Like you know, the people like looking at each other on the on the floor for like three minutes. Ah. That's just beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm okay with that. I yeah. think it, it adds like a, it? a little I, bit of. I actually think that uh, a big a big part that could move the marketing issue. Uh, forward in our industry would be if we again this all comes back to cooperation at some level yeah but um if let's say uh casinos decided to become ownership so mm -hmm. to speak right if I'm we so develop if we develop the league uh similar to sports leagues I, I think that that would incentivize a heavy marketing push which would change narratives. It would create characters, right? It's, it's what's lacking from the high roller scene right now on Poker Go. They, nobody cares. No one gives a shit about anyone in that scene because they're unattainable and no one knows them, right? And not no one knows them in the way that no one knows Phil Ivey. No one knows them in the way that like they're not on any social media. They're not on any public forums. They're not on regular television. They're just buried behind a, uh, a paywall, right? They're very unique. To exactly poker goes model if let's say mgm and sands and uh you know or maybe even at an individual level like bally's and caesars and uh aria etc they all became owners in this league right they, they were the ownership like the roonies are the owners of the steelers and there were 32 of them uh you know across the country across the nation across the world who gives a shit right uh and they drafted players and those players played in open events where it 
cost them a fraction of the buy-in or no buy-in whatsoever, right? The money, the, the, the prize money was drummed up the way that it is in golf. And you had to earn your, earn your pro card. Like you need X amount of dollars on your Hendon mob in order to even be eligible for the draft, something like that. Uh, I know that this was attempted with the GPL, um, but I, I think the vision was just like way off and they weren't operating with nearly enough scale. I think Wasn't this needs PPL, to start at scale. The professional players league or something like that. Uh, that was, maybe that was way before. The EPL was the Epic Poker League that any dude uh, tried. Yeah, but the again, million like, dollar, <laughs> the million dollar not uh, guaranteed yeah. that wasn't. But again, that was don't talk about that. Right, that was just bullshit. <laughs> she just like drummed up. Uh, she just drummed up like extra EV for people to be incentivized to play. Um, and then the Alex Dreyfus thing, I think, was the GPL, the Global Poker League. Um, but it wasn't done. It, it, the the vision just wasn't started with enough scale you have to start with a lot of money right, right. You, you can't start at a small grassroots scale and try to grow it it would literally have to involve like uh like like the caesars uh the mgms the 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 big entities of the world and you would have to have them out there drafting you know call it a fantasy team whatever but now these players are on their payroll indirectly like they get the free roll you know maybe 2.5 million dollars worth of buy-ins a year and then maybe they get to keep like call it 75% of earnings something right. along those lines now what do the interviews look like cuz they're incentivized they ha- they they they're emboldened to the league to show up to do post game to actually invoke some emotion to to give the media what they want they're they're incentivized to lit cameras in their house or to follow them from America to Australia to Japan or whatever, you know? It, I mean, it's, it's hard to blame like Jake Schindler and those guys, you know, you, you buy in hundred K event or whatever. And like, you're buying in with your own money. You're, you're play, paying the juice. Like you, you don't, you want to do an interview. You don't want to do an interview that that's your right. call. You're, you're literally paying your way. Uh, I mean, which is quite frank, you know, it's, it's strange. It's a strange environment. Like bowling has giant sponsors, and the rodeo has giant sponsors. And like you know, the I don't think the Cowboys pay money to to uh, participate, right? Like there's a qualification process in a league, and and all of that. I, I don't. This is okay. So this is going to be maybe controversial for my podcast specifically, but like, yes, is poker that interesting? Like, really, is poker that in, as as interesting as like? the rodeo, right? Like, where's exciting to watch um, for such a league to, to have a chance to thrive. And, you know, if not, then how do you make poker more exciting, which I think is another giant kind of problem to talk about another day. To, to, to your point, I mean, I, I, I remember when I was, you know, start playing out, you know, Daryl Brunson would always say, you know, I'm, I'm not an entertainer, you know, I'm not trying to entertain anybody. I would count my chips for, for nobody. So it was like a, a very, to, to your point, uh, and uh, just to 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 flush out this this argument and 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 the vision, I have a, I have a couple of questions, which is basically one of them is essentially is it entertaining? And the one way I would I would rephrase it uh, is are the current um, personalities like for example we're talking about poker go the people who play poker stakes are those people marketable? Like even if there was money behind them, uh, or is potentially the fact because again. A thought that comes to my mind, like people like, for example, Phil Helmuth, they do have casinos behind them. Like, I mean, Phil Helmuth, wherever he goes, he has the Aria shirt, <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, th- th- that's one question. And another question, uh, uh, based on another point, uh, Matt, you made earlier is, 
Uh, you mentioned the, the the language, the new language. It would be helpful to have a, a proper language with in without dumbing it down too much, making sure that people can actually follow the strategy. And uh, where do you think uh, professionals like Antonius Fandiari on ESPN and Nick Shulman could improve in, in, in that in that space? Yeah, uh, to answer your first question of are they marketable, we don't know. But I promise you, if you give them enough money, anybody can become marketable. Uh, you give them training. You, you do it like this is a big corporation problem to solve. And unfortunately, uh, I think that's where the, the argument dies because we just don't have big corporations in this industry outside of operators and operators have no interest whatsoever in the, working with players. <laughs> the fact that Phil Helmuth is more you know, has marketing mechanism behind him is sort of at least proof that he is marketable, which is not something I would have assumed <laughs> just like watching him. Right. Oh, um, no, but he is. You, you wouldn't, I, 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 I don't know. Just like wa watching him. Like if his, if he was, okay. So if I were in a random casino and there was this guy acting like Phil Helmuth acts like in a random game, that's not being televised. My intuition would be like, no, I don't think that guy's very likable or marketable. It's the opposite. He's I divisive. Any, anything divisive and yeah. polarizing, polarizing is one hundred percent. I mean, yeah. look, look at like he's interesting. Uh, like we can say interesting. It doesn't matter if you like him or not. He's interesting. He's different, right? I mean, it's something yeah, like but it, divisiveness it just sells. Like yeah. look, look at look at like uh, Doug right wing pundits, right? Their their sole their sole goal isn't to make a point. It's just to remain divisive. And as long as you do that, you're always going to have both sides tuning in, one yeah. to refute and one to agree. Uh, and I, I think like Helmuth plays that character really, really well. And it's it's a perfect example of like, we don't know. He is absolutely your prototypical, boring Midwestern white guy that would have absolutely no marketability on the surface. But when you peel it away, he's loud, he's gregarious, he's an asshole, he's unhinged. Like there are all these things about him that he plays the role for and it generates him six or seven, seven figures of revenue a year. So if you give people a, a platform and enough opportunity, uh, I, I think in myself is a good example. It's like if you ask somebody who uh, only knows me from playing with me or from uh, you know brushing elbows with me throughout the years, they're probably going to talk about me being cold, quiet, uh, reserved, you know, all, all of these things that truly deep down I'm not. And if you ask somebody who only watches my content and has never met me in real life, never played with me or whatever, they're probably going to say the opposite. He's loud, he's boisterous, he's outspoken and, and all these other things. It's like, I'm something in between, but you're playing a role based off of whatever the environment is for you. If you're in a, a competitive casino environment, there's no reason to be personable. If you are on the mic for an hour a day doing a podcast, there's no reason to be reserved and cold, right? Uh, so from the marketable aspect, I think that like, you know, we have enough people to choose from. Even with uh, a low female population, I think that we can still get the cream of the crop to rise. Um, and if you're giving people the incentive of a bunch of EV on seven figures worth of buy-ins a year, they're going to be whatever you need them to be. They're going to play whatever role you need them to play. Uh, I don't care if it got to a point where like interviews were scripted. Like, let it be the WWE. That's fine. I, I think that like you know, there's room for that, especially when you're talking about a non-visual uh, game. Like, that's the biggest thing we keep doubling back to is like there's no visual element to the game. Uh, and to answer your second question, like. What can these commentators do better? Um, I, I think it's just acknowledging the fact that there is a wide array of uh, people watching. And not. I, I think the biggest problem commentary runs into is trying to speak to the, the lowest common denominator rather than uh, speaking to 
the lowest point at which people can get to, right? So you kind of want to speak to the floor of comprehension rather than the lowest common denominator of what people don't know already. Uh, and I think that that's really, uh, maybe I'm not wording that very well, but basically what I'm oh, trying to say is you, you want to use language and verbiage and uh, terms and concepts that even the lowest hanging fruit or the lowest common denominator can eventually understand. And that was my point with Tony Romo. He's not divulging the entire playbook to you. He's teaching you Pop Warner football, right? He's teaching you something that you could learn as a 13-year-old if you went to a handful of practices. So he's speaking at that level of the, the floor of comprehension necessary in order to see some of the nuance in the game rather than dumbing it down to the lowest common denominator of the person watching. I can perhaps give like an example to illustrate that. And I think that's a, a, one example would be, you know, oh, I, so uh, player X puts the re-raise and that is called the three bet. Five minutes later, you know, player X puts a three-raise three and that's called the three bet. Like, so yeah. you know, people don't need to hear that this is called the three bet for the fifth time, right? Even people who you know, don't know it, they, 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 they got the point. You can just start calling it re-raise or three bet or something like that. And then eventually people will, will catch up. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, all right. So I think, yeah, I think we, we can wrap up. We, we've officially gone into overtime here. Oh man. Yeah. That's, that's the exciting. New, the new language, um, overtime, by the way, my, my 11 year old daughter knows like field goal and like knows how football works. Right. I think that's just like, people don't want to be patronized as well. I think the, the watcher doesn't want to be patronized and, and you can just speak to them like they're normal human beings who are like capable of learning how things work over time. And, yeah, the Tony Romo thing, he, peel, he peeled back the curtain and sort of showed this element uh, of strategy and started predicting where plays were going to go or how plays were going to be drawn up. And that's compelling to the watcher because it shows them, you know, the game within the game, which is quite quite an important thing. It makes it way more engaging while you're watching something. Um, and, and, you know, that obviously can be done in poker. It's just poker is very uh, much slower than football. You know, a, a play in football lasts... 10 seconds a poker tournament last you know 10 years and, and and there is also like a way i mean the, the richard feynman principle right i mean you can explain if you cannot explain something to a five-year-old you don't understand it well yourself but it's not patronizing to use words that people understand what is patronizing is to like necessarily keep repeating the same thing over and over because a five-year-old doesn't need repetition actually as a matter of fact if anybody needs repetition is as old people because the five-year-olds <laughs> absorb so quickly right so what, what, the only thing you have to do is just use language that you know they compre comprehend, and you know it's okay to throw a few terms here and there. But you know can, he's always making. Go ahead. Can you imagine having a conversation with somebody and be like, "Yeah, it's called the three bet," and then like a hundred times in that conversation, like describing it to them every single time, they'd be like, "What the fuck is wrong with like stop talking?" Or, or even I, I think uh, the the bigger point to make is uh, once it's established that they understand what a three bet is not patronizing them by then explaining what a four bet or a five bet is. That's exactly right. right. The term, right? It's yeah. they can extrapolate. It's not that difficult. Exactly. 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 Um, so I guess one one last question just just to, to close it off. Uh, a very simple one. Takes us another two hours. Does poker need celebrities? Um we need platforms. So yes. Uh we need platforms to leverage. Uh, I think that aids in the the marketing uh conundrum that we suffer from. Um, I think that like, you know, only good things happen, uh, as much as I'm going to regret saying this, uh, only good things happen when 
people like Kim Kardashian or Dan Blazarian are, you know, shouting from the rooftops that they play poker. Somebody timestamp this, please. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, Phil, Phil Helmuth threatens to burn the Rio down. Like, right. to me, like, these that, are the most well known people. Nobody's going to TV. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to run into a cabbie that asks you about Jason Kuhn. And like, that's just uh, an unfortunate byproduct of our marketing issue at, at, at play here. But until we can correct that, people are going to ask me if I've ever played with Dan Blazarian. I get asked that all the time. Like, nobody cares anything else. I can tell people, oh, you play poker for a living? That's awesome. It's like, yeah, I literally gamble for houses. They're like, oh, cool, cool. So you know Dan Blazarian? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Like that that with- reminded me of something I wanted to ask you, Matt. Uh, have you ever played with Dan Blazarian before? <laughs> <laughs> I have. I have indeed. Uh, he's <laughs> no. a fucking nit. <laughs> he's a he's nit. an absolute fucking nit. <laughs> You heard it here first, like a goddamn nit. <laughs> um, Berkey, your your podcast here. We'll close on that. You know, if the the CPG listener wants to check out, you know, this show that you got rolling five days yep. a week, where do they go? Uh, head to youtube.com slash solve for why. Uh, we're usually live at two p.m. Monday through Friday. You can catch the replay on YouTube or uh, on any podcast audio channels that you listen to. Awesome, man. Yeah. It's been, been great having you as always. Um, I'll, what are you going to say, Duncan? I was going to say that, you know, for those of you impatient people who are waiting for timestamps, just give it a little bit of time. They put, ti- put timestamps a little bit later. So yeah. just, just, just be patient, people. You know, we're poker players, right? I mean, pa- patience is important. CPG yeah. is destined to never have any timestamps. So if, you, if you're waiting for timestamps, you can, yeah, <laughs> go somewhere else. <laughs> Get an intern. Uh, I have I, I have an assistant and I have I have infinite things to do like uh, you know there's always more work to be done and more things and like time stamps are probably number I don't know 15 on the priority list and like spoiler alert I don't think I'm ever gonna make it to number 15 on the priority list yeah um, yeah well again great conversation and uh, yeah talk to you in the near future yeah thanks guys Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.